Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with John Underkoffler, CEO of Oblong Industries. Oblong Industries was founded in 2006 with the goal of delivering a better human-computer interface to make computers more useful, interactive, and empowering for humans working in business, government, education, and more. John Underkoffler is the developer of a technology that is not commonly known. Have you ever heard of the G-Speak spatial operating environment? Neither did we. Oblong's work builds on 15 years of experience at the MIT Media Labs, where John introduced a few innovations, including real-time computer graphics systems and large-scale visualization techniques. In this episode, Chad and John sit down to discuss his upbringing and how he first became interested in computers, how a user interface can make teams more effective, and what it was like working on movies such as The Minority Report. John, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you just came from a sales kickoff or where were you at? I did. Uh, this uh, this session, this podcast is going to be a really interesting test of my cognitive ability to switch <laughs> contexts because, yes, I was just in a four or five hour sales kickoff meeting. Q3 has just begun. Very cool. Anything exciting you can share or any? Uh, yeah. W- what was the meeting about? Well, of course. Other we, than sales. Yes. We, we <laughs> well, I mean, it's in fact, that's a good question. I mean, it's about the, the complete commercial landscape, the opportunities, how things are shifting, new partnerships, new distribution models and so forth. And the big news for us is that, uh, and it, it's super exciting for us as a company, is that we've just made it uh, into the Cisco Solutions Plus program, which means that we're on the GPL, the global price list, which means that Cisco... Uh, is now fully capable of selling mezzanine and uh, and oblong's other products. So that's a huge milestone, and it's a it's a kind of accelerant or a, an amplifier for our message that we kind of expect to be transformative. And for folks that aren't familiar, what's the mezzanine? Did I get that right? Yes. What's the mezzanine platform, and what's that all about? Yeah. So as a bit of background, uh, mezzanine is oblong's flagship product, and now it's a, a product suite or product family. Um, and without backing up too much, which I expect we'll do through the rest of the session, <laughs> oh, we definitely will. Mezzanine is is a kind of very compact manifestation of one of oblong's core uh, bits of philosophy or core theses around the future of work and around what's holding us back. And right. uh, that piece in particular is about collaboration. The recognition that every computer you've ever used for the last 35 or 40 years uh, from the moment that computers got personal is too personal. Uh, Every computer you've ever used is for one person at a time and one person only, and that's you. Uh, The the whole user interface, and there's a lot to talk about there, has been designed and construed and built in order to support the activities of a single person and a connection between one person and one machine, uh, cloud notwithstanding. So Mezzanine is effectively the world's first multi-user computer. And a mezzanine installation typically has two, three, four, five, six big displays on the walls of a conference room or a working space. And it's not very complicated. It's just that those pixels on those displays are kind of a Switzerland of pixels. They're fair game for anyone to throw content and ideas and images and documents and applications onto all at the same time. Simple idea, just like your desktop can support more than one window, more than one app at a time. This is just saying, well, people need to work that way even more when they're in groups or teams. And this is primarily for the enterprise at this point. Is it available for everyone? Who's uh, who's the focus audience for this? Yeah, I think there, there's two answers to that question. One is commercial. The other is maybe more philosophical. Commercially, sure. we made the decision early on to go uh, to, to aim straight at the enterprise. In fact, uh, to, to aim straight at the Fortune 500, Forbes Global 2000, let's say. 
And indeed, that's uh, that's our current customer base. We've got a, over 150 sort of blue chip, super super legible wow. logos uh, that are using the product all literally all around the world. Yeah. Um, well, not quite literally. We're on six continents. We still don't have anything on Antarctica, but it's pretty uh, comprehensive. Uh, it, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure. If anybody's listening, McMurdo Station will need one eventually. Yeah, but, if anybody's listening or knows yes. them, uh, yeah, get in contact. We're, we're ready to go. We can scramble uh, equipment uh, anywhere, anywhere on the planet. We know way more about logistics and shipping and worldwide fulfillment than a company our size should. Uh, but I think I sort of tripped myself and derailed whatever it was that I was saying. No, no, all, all good. Um, but yeah, it's it's an enterprise play at the start. But for me, uh, it has always been the case that the stuff wants to go anywhere. Uh, we've also just launched a kind of pure virtual version of Mezzanine that we call Rumpus. And it's the same kind of multi-content, multi-stream, multi-user paradigm, uh, but uh, scaled to fit exactly on your laptop on the assumption that there are, on the recognition really, that the world's workforce is increasingly built out of pure remote teams, folks right. who are working out of hotel rooms and their houses and airports and the rest of it. So very, that's very that's cool. really exciting. And that product variant is initially aimed specifically at SMB and, you know, remote teams. And and then we join in the middle and we get everyone, except that that doesn't include consumer. And I think that there's a, a play there as well. Sure. This stuff should be in your house, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's so cool about your work is that it's based on uh, a lifetime, right, of pursuit, of seeking, of research, of experiments. And yeah, so let's go back up to the beginning or as far back as you feel comfortable going. But who are you and where'd you come from? Yeah, well, I was uh, a zygote, a single cell uh, combining genetic <laughs> material from my parents. Thank you yeah. for that. Uh, and then we can zip forward <laughs> a few years. But, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up at a time when computation was just kind of turning the corner uh, from, let's say, from scarcity to abundance. And really, the, the pivotal thing for me, and it's a moment that, uh, that can't ever be replicated. It, it may in some other technological form or, or human activity form, but for digital technology, there was that moment when suddenly you had an Apple II Plus in your right. house, in your bedroom, or it was an Atari 800, or it was a Sinclair ZX80, or whatever it was, it doesn't matter. But the idea that instead of renting out uh, you know, or borrowing computer time one hour, at a go as you would in a university or, you know, some big corporation, you could just have at it all the time, the machine. just keep drinking coffee, which you probably shouldn't <laughs> as a 14 year old and stay up all night and program and invent stuff. Right. And of course it wasn't just little nerdlets like me. It was, it was everyone suddenly a profusion of different ideas and, and new forms right. were born out of that shift from scarcity to abundance. And, so, know, were you primarily on video game systems? Was it the Apple II? Was it the Atari? Uh, and how'd you get started uh, coding and learning uh, everything that you did? Was it primarily games or how'd you get started? Well, in, in my case, it literally was an Apple II Plus. So there's, you know, there's that particular flavor, although it probably wouldn't have mattered much if it were one of the others. Uh, I think there's something more core to the experience than that. Watching what was happening in video games that, were pe that people were building for those platforms, those general purpose computing platforms, was a huge inspiration. And it was, it was the inducement to, for example, in my case, to go beyond basic, which is the programming language that comes pre-installed on the Apple II plus and learning how to type call minus one, five, one. And, uh, for those of you out there like me in your 
late 90s, you'll recognize <laughs> that as the thing that gets you into the kind of command line, like we can't even really say assembler, right. but it gets you into a, a into a little command loop where you can literally type machine code in and you learn the hexadecimal. Uh, I'm sorry, this is going ridiculously. This is good. Okay. This all right. is, you, yeah, you just, this, this is great. This is fantastic. So throw a lot one of, of those large volumes on your shelf at my head if it, if it no, gets not, too, not at all. Too I mean, in the weeds. Uh, just for extra context. So a lot of our listeners are uh, executives in technology at the Fortune 500. We have an entire show called IT Visionaries, which is dedicated to interviewing CIOs, CTOs, and uh, getting as nerdy as possible. So Excellent. feel free to go even even deeper if you want. All right. Well, I'm, they don't normally let me off the leash like this, so <laughs> you, you, you may have to get the spray. But um, yeah, and so the, learning to program in machine language on that self-same machine because BASIC didn't go fast enough, you know, that, that's a great learning moment. The idea that the video game programming thing is an inducement to go beyond what you would have done. But there's something more fundamental there, which is that those platforms, um, because they were standalone, they weren't connected to a network, they weren't connected to a kind of vast and overreaching commercial infrastructure right. that controls the experience the way we have today. And maybe we'll say more about that in, in a few minutes. This was a self-contained universe. And the, the box itself, the machine itself was a kind of fantastic invitation to invent because that's all you could do. Like, right. there, it didn't come with iTunes. It didn't come with yeah. anything else to do. So the best fun you could have with it was making your own new worlds. It's a bit of a, uh, it's a bit like an island in an evolutionary sense where speciation is much easier if you're not connected to oh, everything wow. at once or, or would you that say? Is, no, that's really nice. And I, I'm kind of wishing that I had said that. But, uh, that's uh, right. That's uh, what I'm here, yeah, that's that's what I'm here for. Okay, to, cool. To just no, I think in. that's exactly right. And so, uh, and so there we were, a bunch of dodos squatting around <laughs> on our islands, <laughs> not having had the opportunity to evolve elsewhere. And it was a really important, uh, an important brief interval. I think I had never thought about it in the terms that you just described, but maybe it was really important that there wasn't a network initially. Sure. There was a lot of foundational work that got done in that effectively isolated And tinkering mode. and tinkering that was yeah. not subject to critiques, you yes. know, uh, you know, immediate critiques and feedback from the outside world. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so in, and this gets us back around in a way to this idea of collaboration versus interaction with a machine that is, uh, that's very solipsistic, that's only looking at you and only thinks about you. You know, if, if it's going to be solipsistic, that's the mode, you know, that was right. the mode to just be in this tiny little cocoon, but with just yourself and the machine, I think. And it was, it was kind of ideal for that. And you get, you know, you get VisiCalc and you get a whole bunch of really seminal video games and a bunch of critical, you know, uh, uh, Bill Budge's uh, uh, pinball construction set. Right. It's just mind-blowing back yeah. in the late 70s or early 80s. Right. right. Where this kind of WYSIWYG thing that's really about visual programming. No, there, was, there was not really any precedent for that and Choplifter and all the rest of it. And all of that came out of that mode of working and thinking. Yeah. So while this is all going on, I'd be really curious to know, you know, were your parents supportive of your your tinkering, your coding and, and all of that? They were, uh, among the many other just kind of incomparably great qualities and character of, of my parents was that they never, uh, there was never really any push from them for my brothers and me to move in any particular direction. I guess it should probably also be said that we didn't really test out that hypothesis <laughs> as extensively as we might have, but <laughs> You know, there was no, well, you have to be a lawyer or you have right. to be a biologist or you have to be a, you know, a factory foreman or Which anything. Which takes so much weight like, off. It, it does. Child's you know, shoulders, I yeah. I think there was, 
good acceptance and and generic support for whatever it was that we found interesting and wanted to do. And you know, in it, it was not a small investment for a family to buy a. I mean, even though the personal computer is is radically cheaper than a Vax eleven seven eighty or whatever that would have been available in the mini right. mainframe arena at that point, it's still a lot of money right. for a family. So yeah. I think that was a you know that was a, a very generous investment on their part. Very cool. And I'd be curious to know did that uh, did those sentiments translate over to your education experience and your school experience? What was that like? And um, did you enjoy K through twelve or was it uh, a bit of a prison? Uh, I did. Yeah, I, I really did. I uh, I don't know why I wasn't bullied more than I was, maybe <laughs> as a as a little nerdlet, but uh, you know, maybe it developed some kind of dodo like defense mechanism, pheromones, or who knows what. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we've pushed that metaphor just about as far as it can go right now. I think I promise not to do it again. Uh, but I, I really did enjoy the experience, and you know, you're lucky if along the way you find a small constellation of really close friends that. Right. That are like minded. And, and I was fortunate enough to do that. And I think with regard to the early computation, early digital machine piece of the puzzle, uh, it was also that moment when you started to realize how you could build things on those machines that plugged into your other interests, uh, as long as they were kind of on the STEM or STEAM side, obviously. There sure. Were, there were bits of curriculum that didn't quite submit as easily to uh, digitalization or whatever horrible word people would use. Yeah. Were there any uh, standout experiences or moments or stories from K through 12 that you feel were very formative in shaping the work you would do later on? Well, let's leave aside sort of the social and political moments of puncture to equilibrium um, <laughs> and we'll stick with the, we'll yeah, stick with the, the computer stuff. There were, I, you know, there were a couple of moments when I made one little video game that was sort of half tribute to half parody of a particular faculty member and <laughs> um, and another another one for a different faculty member who had been my mentor that was kind of pure a pure expression of love really yeah. you know and and so without being conscious of it at the time I was already kind of exploring the way in which this digital medium could be treated as a as a generic medium a medium for uh, let's say narrative expression artistic expression you know non-digital expression it yeah. just happens to be digital and I think that flows forward through all of the stuff that I've done and, and into the company and beyond. That experience of creating something that helps articulate more of who you are, what you're feeling and showing people what you mean instead of just what you're saying, I feel like is so powerful, right? Because once you get in that habit of creating it and getting the real-time feedback and the emotional feedback, if it's good, it's a bit intoxicating, right? Would you describe it as uh, addicting or would you describe it as yeah, intoxicating, or what's that feeling like for you? Well, I think you've used all the good words. It, it really is intoxicating. It's addicting. It's and it's liberating, right? It, the, it does the discovery of a better new, after it of a new medium. And I think what we're circling around here is the idea of literacy. Yes, right? yeah. Um, at least in school, we still, I guess, purport to teach written literacy, so people read and write. Although not not nearly enough attention, I think, is paid to the the power and the value of really good writing. Agreed. And now most Western schools have some semblance, excuse me, of a curriculum around programming and the way that it connects into STEM or STEAM, which is good. Missing, of course, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately, missing uh, are uh, any kind of basic drawing, dressmanship, painting line, right? right. Yeah. The other half of your brain. And this gets right into what mezzanine does and a lot of uh, Oblong's other offerings and ideas, right? There's 
you know, of the many things that the human brain does, two of the biggest achievements are one language that, you know, it's not literally a lobe or a hemisphere, but that chunk of brain that's about narrative. It's about uh, linearized uh, crystallization and transmission of thought. That's kind of an amazing magic trick. You speak words or you type words and they travel over distance, maybe over time as well. They go into someone else's head and that person gets a picture. Well, I shouldn't use the word picture, but that that person gets a a mental construct uh, of what you meant. That's phenomenal. If they have the same dictionary as you, you can get closer to... (laughs) Exactly. But the reason that I avoided the word picture is because that's the other really important half of the brain, the spatial part, the pictorial part, the part that understands the world as a series of landscapes near and far. Uh, The near ones are maybe manipulable. Mm -hmm. It seems to me a huge loss that K through 12 education does not have a visual literacy, meaning reading and writing, not just reading, but writing as well, uh, component the way it does for the, the written word or for language, right. I think. And I feel hamstrung by that personally all the time. My inability to just pick up a stylus and show you what yes. I mean, because it's yeah. in there. Uh, but actually, of course, just as with writing, the act of transmuting it from kind of abstract thought into something on a page uh, crystallizes it and reforms it. And when you see people who do that and who can do that, it's very magical. My son is a phenomenal artist and just, you know, watching what comes out of the, you know, out of his pencil is, is for me magical. And I think that, uh, that inability is part of what has led to, to the way that I've pointed oblong in the direction of getting ideas, getting visual ideas out of people's individual devices and onto a screen where everyone can see them. It's really compensating. Everything is compensation, right? So it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's compensating true. for what I perceive as a, a really unfortunate lack. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. So I, I tend to view human language as the one of the first singularities that we went Bingo. through as a species. And the next singularity I think that's coming isn't necessarily the uh, AI fear-driven uh, Butlerian jihad type style future, but it's much more of a you know, a more perfect logos to get nerdy from a philosophical mm. standpoint, where instead of uttering these small mouth noises that have to sync up to another's experiences and dictionaries and things like that, we can get to a place with mind brain interfaces and things like that, where we can show people what we mean. And that's uh, basically what a lot of your work is, right? It is. It, it's, it, it's geared it, towards that. Just so. Yeah. Very uh, cool. To to sort of, I've always seen what we do at Oblong as a as a kind of exoskeleton, a yeah. digital exoskeleton. You can slip on to to amplify your synthetic will, your your synthetic intent, right? Like I can't I can't do the thing you just said because we haven't developed those innate abilities yet, or a, a technically based mind brain other mind interface. But if I can just get the ideas that I have, maybe those ideas are on my laptop. Sure. If I can get them out into a space where other people can see them and see them exactly at the same time and in the same way that I mean them, then we're part of the way there. Yeah. And then that's very, very exciting. So what were the, what was the earliest moment that led to Oblong? Like, did it crystallize instantly? Was it a period of years? Uh, Because I know you've worked on these ideas, I think for at least 15 years at MIT and many other places. Um, so how did the company start? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not quite such a simple story, but I hope it's, uh, I hope given that it's a little longer, it's also, if not more interesting, at least less expected. Uh, and, and there are deep roots, deep sort of genetic roots, uh, for Oblong at the MIT media lab. It was a unique moment in time, a unique place and a unique assembly of people. 
I arrived at MIT just at the moment that uh, that the Media Lab was opening its doors a few months before that, in fact. So I helped carry holography equipment from a different building into the brand new shining facilities of the Media Lab's basement. But I think what was fantastic about that place and that time is that Jerry Wiesner and Nicholas Negroponte, who'd founded the thing, had a clear view that this newfangled computer thing that everybody's been talking about, you know, these computer things uh, were not, as it turned out, going to be principally about computation. We're not going to be database machines. We're not going to be spreadsheet machines. They are those things, and they are still importantly today, of course. But what Wiesner and especially Negroponte saw, foresaw, was that computers were going to be communications mm. devices. And the Media Lab's been right about a lot of stuff and wrong about a lot of stuff along the way, but that core tenet has been proven a billion times over. But remember, this is 1984. 1984, sure. that's, that's practically heretical. And it got more heretical because Negroponte understood that in order to substantiate this idea and in order to conduct the kinds of experiments and build the kinds of systems that would prove out the idea of computation as communication, mm. he couldn't just fill a brand new IMP building with computer scientists. Yes, we needed, uh, you know, the building would need some hardcore computer scientists and we certainly had some of the best, but the building also had to be filled with these high velocity particles made out of people who were uh, in every other conceivable communications and design field available to right. be kind of scraped together into one physical space and one mental space. And that meant documentary filmmakers. It meant holographers uh, like myself in those early days. It meant architects. It meant photographers and graphic designers uh, and everything else that you can imagine that was about communication and hadn't necessarily been about computation previously. And so, uh, you know, there you had this kind of particle collider with all these people whizzing around and banging off each other and uh, folks sitting cheek by jowl in offices that they were forced <laughs> to share. And everything came out of it. These high, high velocity collisions produced these beautiful bubble chamber like swirls of new ideas, new arguments. Very few of them became violent, but, you know, really interesting <laughs> arguments, uh, new technologies sure. and a lot of new companies as well. Very cool. So uh, that's that's the kind of uh, wacky crucible, melting pot crucible that the that the Media Lab was. I spent the first eight years there as a holographer, uh, trying to bring the kind of R2-D2 Princess Leia vision into reality. And we, we got a fair distance, but at a certain point, I think I just got frustrated that the stuff couldn't move and it couldn't interact as much as I felt like it needed Could to. Or needed, uh, yeah. yeah. But so about uh, half of my unreasonably elongated tenure <laughs> at that place, I, I sort of switched over to a, a drive toward a very pure view of what I thought the future of user interface itself could be. Right. What should it mean to use computers? And around the time that I made that switch, it was 1994, roughly uh, a, a decade after the Macintosh had come about. Um, I very, well, uh, without question, very naively thought, ah, decades probably, that, that's a good run for a, a GUI. Let's go let, you know, on to the next one. Maybe it takes us a few years. But by, you know, 1999, we should be using something that's almost unrecognizably more advanced than the Macintosh GUI uh, from 84. That turned out to be spectacularly wrong, of course, right. as we all know today, 35 years on, we're still using exactly that UI. Does it feel like a glacial pace? It does. And it's something that I actually worry about, not just from a technological point of view, but really from a kind of species and existential Absolutely. point of view. Like we're, we're stuck behind... Think 
things are not necessarily accelerating. If you look at the rate of inventions per capita, they're actually, there's some research that suggests that they're falling. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Jonathan Hubner's work. I think he has a paper uh, called the a possible declining trend in global innovation, but we're actually approaching dark age levels in terms of inventions per capita right, right now, yeah. which is pretty disturbing. And he makes a great case for this. Uh, he's a researcher at the Naval Special Warfare Institute, okay. but it's a great paper. We'll link it up in the show notes. Sorry uh, for the tangent. Well, no, no, yeah. not at all. This is this is actually <laughs> right at the yeah. uh, right at the core of every, everything that I'm thinking about these days. What's his conclusion what's the diagnosis i mean he he doesn't well, but i guess why right is it so why questions are very tough and i think he shies away from them in this piece but uh i mean i would venture that though the why is a cultural can we go yeah. out on a limb and please s- suspect that it is a cultural and economic thing as well the swirl of the world's best talent into startups it has i think led to an imbalanced situation uh, and to the I, concentration of technological power and foresight into the hands of a very small number of very large corporations. I know this is completely make me or this podcast very popular, so you can edit it out later. But no, no, uh, no, it, it's uh, it's completely fine. And I think that this is something, though, that is on the radar of every exec at every Fortune 500, because yeah. let's call it the health span of major enterprises is falling as well. Right. Um, which is another very disturbing trend because you're not going to be able to accomplish anything or set up a Mars base or mine an asteroid if you can't have 100 and 200 year plans. I, I think that's exactly right. And the temporal scale that is induced by the quarterly well, by, by quarterly results is, yeah. is at odds, is very much at odds with that. Um, Do things like the long term stock exchange or anything like that give you hope that we're uh, or blockchain or anything on blockchain? Does anything there give you hope that we might be able to start accelerating this pretty rapidly? Because I mean, I think there's, it's something like $10 trillion right now are getting negative yields uh, all around the world. And the capital is there. The people are there. Yep. Let's start connecting it. <laughs> I think that for the answer to that really important question that you just asked to be anywhere close to a yes, um, the, the, the aperture, the scope has to be widened to include basic human organizational and political systems. Sure. I mean, yeah. You know, the current version of capitalism is... Uh, well, we can talk about Reynolds numbers and uh, lift and drag and all, but the, the the nose of the craft may not be pointed where people think it's pointed. Agreed. We just published a newsletter called uh, While Communism and Capitalism Were Battling Technology One, and it's uh, and basically an invitation to start thinking about what new economic models might look like. Yeah. Um, we definitely need to have that. We need as many voices as possible in that conversation because uh, we need to start answering these questions immediately. So you mentioned existential risks. Is there anything, uh, I don't want to get too dark, but is there anything that's uh, especially pressing at the forefront of your mind or that you're worried about? Well, I think there's a confluence of things that comes down to one thing that demands immediate attention, and I'm sure it won't get any, but that's uh, that's okay. At least we will have said it here on this very <laughs> awesome podcast. Love it. And so uh, on the one hand, we, uh, we've got this increasingly decrepit UI, and, and let me be fair, I mean, the GUI that we have on our laptops is still good enough as a general purpose GUI that we can do what we need to do. We can do that as programmers. We can do it as finance people. We can, you know, kind of make a go at it as designers and so forth. The tools aren't horrible, but the UI itself is still fundamentally holding us back. And it's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of quality. There are things and thoughts and ideas and kinds of work and kinds of synthesis that we literally cannot get at. Mm-hmm because of the UI that our brains are capable of, that our consciousnesses, our cognitions are capable of, that, uh, and that the backend computation is, compu- uh, is capable of, but that the UI is now in the way of. 
So you you add that to what I see, frankly, as a kind of disturbing trend around uh, a, a fetishization of really abstract technology. Yes. And I don't know why this happens, but the more weird and abstract and kind of fundamentally incomprehensible it is, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's AI, the more people seem to get excited about it and invest in it. And I am not impugning any of those technologies. They're all important. But what does each one say? I mean, so let's take AI, and this is going to turn into a really long and kind of bitter Jeremiah, so you can again throw that volume at my head. But first right, off, no, no, no. This the is great. AI that people mean today is really just machine, machine learning, and it's yeah. just a particular kind of machine learning. It's not all of ML. It's just a particular kind that turned out to have seemed like a dead end 30 years ago, and then it turns out that with enough, enough computation and speed and storage, it's a really good way of working. We're no longer, when we say AI, we're no longer mean what Minsky, you know, and others meant by AI, which was the ambition. What we now, I think we have to call AGI, artificial intelligence, which is recreating minds and and cognition, whether it's analogous and homologous to human or not, that that itself gets really exciting. Uh, Instead, what we've got are algorithms. So, you know, it's obligatory for everything and everyone and every article and every outlet uh, to talk constantly about AI. But really, that stuff exists at the level that we might just as well, you know, substitute the word algorithm and things wouldn't be much different. You could say, well, from a from a human attentional point of view, a lot has changed. You could have done the same thing. Like if someone just invented the database today and nothing else changed, we'd be doing the same thing around the database. How will database databases change the way you buy milk? You know, (laughs) and the answer is yes, it will change the way that supermarkets work and how you buy milk. But so uh, I'm way off every possible kind of base at this point, and I'll try to collect it all back together. We've sort of fetishized these abstract uh, technologies that are not directly knowable and Mm -hmm. reachable. Uh, And I'm excited that there are some places in the media lab is one of them that are now starting to look at the, question of ethics around AI, that that's a good step forward. Need to do a lot more of it. But why are we so excited about these these techniques that basically take more and more responsibility and agency away from us, right? Whether it's, uh, whether it's algorithms, AI algorithms that, uh, that prescribe incarceration details, you know, or traffic infractions, or that scan your face and assign a social credit to you. Uh, I mean, those are all sort of dark forms, but they're the ones that people are getting a lot of investment right away. So uh, the thing that I think would be interesting would be to say, well, let's put together a programmatic study and synthetic study around what's an appropriate UI for AI. Like what, how do we, how do we take the black box Mm -hmm. that is AI? And I've just given up on complaining about the, the phrase. I'm just using it like everyone else now. How do we, how do we kind of scrape away the you know, a window into the black surface of the black box that is AI. So you can see inside. Mm -hmm. Are there reasons to think that it might be, you know, obligatory in a social or maybe even political way that algorithms that are otherwise that complex and unknowable or kind of uninstrumentable have to present some version of their inner workings to you? I'm not going there from a particularly interest, particular interest in regulation or anything like that. I think it's actually a really incredibly interesting problem space. And we mm-hmm. would learn a lot if it were obligatory that some fraction of the team was working on a steering wheel 
for AI yes. and a windshield that you could see through and some windshield wipers yes. that would scrape the inch thick, you know, buildup of smashed bugs on the on the front of the AI, you know, surface away so you can see. Sure. Yeah. Those are the kinds of questions that I think are really important to start looking at now. So the lack of uh, an appropriate, the lack of UI that's receiving proper attention and is evolving along with underlying technologies that, that we're putting a lot of money and effort and time and human resources uh, and cognitive capital into evolving, that plus the particular set of technologies that we're choosing to apply humanity to, I think that that set is probably getting narrower and narrower in the way that you described. Yeah. And that too is gonna, uh, is gonna lead to this sort of uh, dark ages, potentially, if yeah. we can't turn it around. Yeah, one of my favorite authors, he was on a panel and the hosts and the other panelists were talking about how they were so glad that books like 1984 stopped 1984 from happening. And then they turned to him, who's been he's been silent the whole time. Will and you name him? Who was the author? Michael Crichton. OK, so they turned to Michael Crichton and they ask him, you know, what's the role of science fiction to help prevent dystopias like 1984? And his answer is chilling. And he basically says something along the lines that. Something worse than 1984 happened, already happened. I'm living in it. Um, other people might not. They might not see it. But that's what it feels like to me because the future that Orwell was predicting didn't happen. It's not necessarily a uh, big brother who's always spying on us, but we're kind of all spying on each other. And we've turned into this, this culture that critiques instead of builds and this culture that's obsessed with everyone else's faults instead of you know improving their own. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but I can't help but uh, feel, you know, feel a similar sentiment, right? Um, because we have all these tools around us, but so much of the debate is just focused on, you know, what's wrong. And it's very, very hard to get together a team, the funding, the resources to actually fix things. So, yeah, I mean, you're early on in the oblong, not now, but back then you were early on in the journey. I'd be curious to know, was it easy to get started? Because it, it doesn't seem like it. You know, I used to think that uh, when people said things like, oh, if I'd known how hard it was, I never would have tried. Uh, we're being dramatic, but it, it probably if I'd known how hard it was going to be, I, I wouldn't have tried. I'd have done something else yeah. instead, uh, which is a great thing. That that kind of youthful energy and naivete is really important. It's important not sure. to muffle or you know hamper that. The thing we had going for us at the beginning, of course, uh, as even as we set out to to radically transform the user interface writ large, was Minority Report itself. Uh, I think an important cautionary tale, a little bit like 1984 and one right. whose most important cautionary parts have been basically ignored in favor of the fun sparkly bits. Um, but we did have the the movie. I'd spent a year of my life trying to build a coherent vision of the technological future that would exist in this speculative 2054 Washington, D.C., you know, landscape, mindscape. And in particular, the view that I just I spent so many hours on trying to dial in in exactly the right way of how a user interface could make a small team incredibly effective. I, I think it's actually interesting in retrospect, right? So in, in having that context already, because I'm seeing scenes from the movie right, right now in my head, and I'm like, oh wow, they make even more sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. So exactly. So I mean, the out of the many problems that the design. Uh, effort behind the film had to solve was what is the future of computation? And Spielberg himself said, please don't tell me we're still going to have a keyboard and mouse in in 50 years. And I think uh, journalists will still have a keyboard because that turns out to be a pretty good UI for 
for typing language, but everything else needs to evolve. And it is interesting to note that there was very explicitly no AI in Minority Report. In fact, that had been, that had literally been Spielberg's previous film, AI, where everything was AI. This is Uh, much more biologically inspired, right? With the precogs and everything. Exactly. And and so what we were saying, what the movie was saying, and very frankly, what I was trying to say with those scenes of gestural computation with the Tom Cruise character and Neil McDonough and Colin Farrell wearing gloves and standing in the middle of a vast visual pixel landscape and volitionally manipulating data, unsifted, unsorted data, manipulating data to kind of, to bring it into the best posture to be understood by human minds. Mm -hmm. Like that's a, it was an attempt anyway at a very strong statement about how powerful UI itself could be. Right. So UI as an extension of uh, human cognition and human teamwork. Uh, and the, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the, those, those scenes really kind of uh, sparked a lot of interest. They were, uh, you know, they, they were written about, they're still for whatever reason remembered and, and written about a lot. A minority report ended up being kind of a, kind of a bellwether for, uh, a symbol for kind of future UI and it's right. still invoked today, which is bewildering and gratifying. Uh, but back in the day when we were getting Oblong off the ground, it was, you know, every time that we were able to invoke Minority Report as a kind of starting position uh, saved us literally an hour. You wow. could either try to sit there with uh, an investor or a customer or a prospective customer or someone else and and try to describe what the future of better improved UI might be. Or you could say, hey, did you see Minority Report the other year? And everyone would say, oh, yeah. We yeah. Would say, well. That was us. That was us prototyping uh, what this should look like. And here, now have a look at the actual real world version. Which I'm sure was incredibly helpful. Um, Are there any stories about the making of that that you can share? Uh, Any stories that maybe stand out? Uh, I know I would be particularly interested to hear about how was Philip K. Dick's original work approached and are you interested in PKD's work or, you know, anything like that? Only massively and obsessively. Very cool. I mean, I think... Did you see the... uh, his uh, exegesis over there? Yeah, with the John Latham <laughs> introduction, if I don't miss my mark. Is that yes, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah I definitely. did. I couldn't help noticing that as I'm <laughs> sitting here squinting. One of my favorites. Uh, it's, it's wild, to yeah. say the least. It is. And he was he was kind of busy cracking up uh, mentally at the time. And yet still, it's, it's amazing. I think Dick remains one of the most important science fiction writers, because from the beginning, he was much more interested in the kind of larger sociological, political, cognitive consequences of technology than he was, just as one example of what he was interested in, uh, than he was in the technology itself. You know, it's always about what can go wrong or what are the unexpected consequences or how do people reformat their lives around a new thread or a new core of technology or technological imperative. And so because he was always asking that, because he was always willing to take a kind of sidelong glance or a a raised eyebrow approach to how that stuff would play out. And because like all too few writers and people did, he understood that comedy is often the best way to truth. The stuff that he wrote is unbelievably prophetic. Right. Even if you look today politically, it, you know, it's unbelievably prophetic. The man who remembered the future is one of (laughs) For example. And who ends up in political office. I mean, it's, it's prefigured by 50 years in, yeah. in, in Dick's work. So, uh, but back to Minority Report, it's interesting because you, you look at the short story that it came from, there's not much there. You know, it's one of those where he was clearly, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not my place to say, but 
he was certainly paid by the word through much of his career. <laughs> and I think he was uh, probably on his third or fourth straight day of sleepless writing, fueled by, fueled by. <laughs> very exciting mo- molecules. Uh, and he just sort of hammered this thing out. And the the characters are are completely not even two dimensional. They're all one dimensional. And it doesn't matter because there's the, the, the incredible core of the idea that you then put flesh back on. The, if the ideas are big enough, it doesn't matter if a yeah. character is a cipher. People will look yep. completely past that. So, yeah. And in a way, for exactly the reason that you say, and because it was a pretty minimal story, it was a pretty great kernel to build. The, it, there wasn't there wasn't much that you had to feel bad about transgressing or trampling. Yeah. You, know, you just yeah. sort of strip away this lint and you've got this the beautiful. Which I'm there. sure is great for the uh, production team and the or at least a little bit helpful, maybe? Uh, completely, yeah. completely. So, and, and it's one of the interesting stories about Minority Report that the production designer, uh, an amazing uh, and pre-legendary guy named Alex McDowell was hired on the same day, literally, that the, the screenwriter, uh, an equally adept guy named Scott Frank was hired. So there was no script on the day <laughs> that we had to start building the world. And that led very directly to a new methodology for designing films and designing in general, which Alex calls world building. And it came about because Alex literally didn't know which way Spielberg would point his camera. Sure. Right. And so all of the sets that he built were sort of 360. Normally you just build this piece of the set because you've got storyboards and you know we're never going to look backwards. We didn't know uh, which direction the camera would have to look also figuratively. We didn't know, would we go into a subway or a hospital? Would, would there be a scene in a courtroom? There was originally, then there wasn't. Would there be a fashion show? At one point there was, then it turned into a car factory chase. The imperative to build the entire world came out of not knowing which piece we'd have to inspect. Hmm. And that process, that that injunction itself was kind of transformative to the design process. And it meant that we had to, we could no longer just build the traditional flats, right? right the sort yeah. of fronts of buildings. Uh, also figuratively, we had to know how this entire future world was going to work. Uh, and that led to, I think, an unusually cohesive vision of the future. Um, and, and back to that vision of the future, I think it turned out accidentally to be unusually prescient because it was a surveillance world that we were depicting. And we were saying it's not the Orwellian version. It's not government that's uh, looking at you all the time. In fact, it's advertisers. Yeah. It's a commercially driven world that's performing facial recognition, targeting ads. This is all before the browser became the place where ads wow. targeted you. And, and so it turned out uh, maybe for, I was going to say for better or worse, but probably for worse to, to have been completely spot on in, in a lot of those ways. Yeah. So during the process of doing the movie and after it was released, uh, I would be, I'm very curious to know, what do you think of the finished product and uh, what did the team who made it, uh, what were the sentiments there? You know, when you, when you work on a film and I think anyone who's, who's, had any hand in, in creating a film, and as we know, it takes a village, uh, knows, perhaps with the exception of the director, but I don't even think that's true, when you're working on it, you don't know how it's going to come out. It can seem like the most brilliant thing day to day, shot by shot as you're making it, and be a complete kind of misfire or doubt or tonally incorrect. Uh, and then there's certainly plenty of counterexamples where stuff that looks dull on the page uh, or where the actors are weird or the direction seems odd turns out to be prophetic or kind of groundbreaking or trailblazing in some un- unexpected way. And so I think we were all gratified to sit there in the cast and crew screening 
watch this thing unspool because it was still shown on film uh, rather than digitally and go, wow, this is, you know, this not only does it hold together, but it's asking really, really interesting questions. It's a very grave film. It is. That has a lot to say and a lot to ask. It, it asks more than it answers, and that's appropriate, but about free will, you know, about the role of technology and politics and, and all the rest of it and predestination and knowledge and cognition. How does all this stuff interoperate with a society that wants to be vital? Uh, and yeah. I, I think I, I, I think we were all very proud. Really good of, word choice there. Yeah. Of thanks uh, of of how that turned out. Yeah. From the momentum of the film, that was kind of the origin of Oblong. Or were you already thinking about the company pre Minority Report? I'd gone from building prototypes of things like what ended up in the film. In fact, that's how I ended up uh, joining the film production. Alex McDowell, when he was on a kind of research uh, junket around the around the country looking into research labs uh, in big companies and universities came across the kind of next, next gen UI stuff that I was building and invited me to come aboard. So I'd come from the practice of building things, prototyping by building, right. thinking by building. Um, and then we built all the stuff a second time, which was fictionally in the film. And I think it's not surprising to anyone or cheating to say that we, you know, the stuff that you see on screen wasn't literally on a screen uh, mm -hmm. on the day. It was uh, it was composited later on. What's different about the process that we used is that I designed the gestural language, all the commands, those sequences uh, as if they would have to be built. Mm. Right. So it wasn't one of these things. And there are other there are certainly other films, sci fi films with gestural interfaces that didn't work this way where I mean, I'm, I've actually been on the set for a few of them where the director says, ah, it's the gestural interface scene. We'll just have Ben Affleck wave his arms around for a while and we'll let the poor editor figure it out. And, yeah. you know, what comes out of that can be visually exciting, but it's never going to be coherent. Uh, instead, you know, I spent weeks training the actors. The actors actually knew this gestural language. They had actually absorbed and, you know, incorporated it into their muscle memory. So they they were performing in a very real sense. They were the first users of Oblong's mezzanine in, in some pretty literal way. It's just that they couldn't very see anything cool. on screen, but they knew what they were going to see. I think that type of uh, attention to detail is recognized by the audience, right? Because if an actor has practiced something to the point where they have muscle memory, exactly. I think that actions where you have muscle memory associated with them are much more professional, much more authentic than ones where you're just doing something for the first time. It's going to be awkward. And yeah. And so. we as social human beings have a, a lot of machinery that's designed to recognize that. Right? Yes. It's, it's yeah. part of the sort of social acceptability or, you know, mutual evaluation of right. fitness or whatever the heck it is. But by the, you know, when someone's faking, yes. you know, when someone yeah. doesn't know the thing that's the first or second time they've. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So, and I think that what you're saying is a really important point because, yeah, it was a hugely technical scene or set of scenes in some sense. Like we didn't expect the audience to come away with uh, having memorized the gestural language, although some people went back and kind of did so. Uh, but we were operating with the knowledge that just as you say, people would be able to tell if it were kind of faked. Yeah. Um, and that leads to, you know, a kind of cognitive engagement with the audience that you can't get any other way. And I think it's that that, in fact, led to the fact that the, quickly after the film came out, I started getting phone calls from Fortune 50 companies basically saying, hey, that's that stuff in Minority Report. Is that real? Can we buy it? Can you build it if it wasn't real then? So cool. I'm 
certainly a a very slow learner, but not quite so slow that after the third or fourth such phone call, I didn't go, oh, I get it, right? <laughs> we we'd built it once in academia. We built it once uh, a second time in a fictional setting, but with a very high level of verisimilitude um, and attention to detail. Now's the chance, actually, and this is what it was. It was an opportunity to get these ideas out into commercial form where they can actually do some good, where they can be used by uh, the world of people who design things and make things and make decisions uh, and shape the world. So are there any stories from the early customers or early pilots uh, that you can share? Well, I think that the story of how we got to mezzanine as our product is actually, is, is a particularly interesting sure. one. We spent the first five years of Oblong's uh, youth uh, building out what I think it's fair to call a minority report operating system. It's a software stack kind of goes all the way down to the metal, all the way down to the silicon. Uh, we call it G-Speak. Uh, and it is it is the literal software embodiment and hardware embodiment of everything that you see in Minority Report, and then a lot more besides, because it has to be more because it's you know it has to exist in the real world. And along the way, you figure out all sorts of other things that it can and should and wants to do. And uh, we had a, a very uh, very nice business for those first five years, licensing G Speak uh, and also providing professional services like building systems on G-Speak uh, around very particular verticals or very particular use cases for customers who would find us, usually because of the film, and uh, but who were very savvy and savvy enough to know that what they had was not a big data problem. That was the phrase you used back in the day. They didn't need more pre-AI or more, uh, you know, more back-end analytics. What they needed, they, they realized, was a better UI. Right. They needed a way for their stakeholders to understand these masses of data. And we worked a lot with uh, with big companies like GE and Boeing and Saudi Aramco. And there was a big light bulb moment for us. Um, we'd spent years building these massive systems. They were often uh, front ends to simulations or smart grid energy management systems, that, that kind of global scale infrastructural view of mm -hmm. the world. Uh, but there's this amazing moment where one of our Boeing colleagues said to us, uh, after we uh, after we clear the giant simulation room that you built for us around G-Speak, once we clear out the the people who were involved in this simulation, a small group of us stays behind to do our our monthly uh, budgetary planning. And we said, we, uh, what? We you know we uh, we built you a global simulation front end. What are you? Why are you? What are you doing in there? And they said, well. It's the only place in all of Boeing's facilities throughout all of the world where we can get more than one laptop, more than one spreadsheet up on the screen at the same time. Wow. And it, it's such a simple idea, but that was, of course, that was the moment of ignition. And we realized that although we'd been building what were radically different use cases, the through line was collaboration. The through mm -hmm. line was that uh, multiple people, multiple different stakeholders, often with very different sets of concerns, could all participate, could control, could inject information and ideas into these collaborative visual spaces at the same time. Uh, and it became quickly evident that there was a generic, uh, not in the bad sense of that word, but a kind of general purpose version of that tool that was just waiting to be born. And that was mezzanine. And the, the simple idea is you've got all the, you know, your team has all the answers that it needs. It's just that those answers are trapped in email, they're trapped in esoteric CAD programs maybe that only Completely. you have on your laptop or that only she has on her tablet or whatever. 
what we need is a way to get that stuff, that content, those ideas, those articulations of sort of human work out of individual devices and up into a shared visual space where everyone, everyone can see them. And then you connect those spaces together, which is one of the magic things that Mezzanine sure. does. And you got people in Sao Paulo and London and Singapore and Los Angeles that's all exciting. seeing the same thing at the same time. Yeah, that's that's very, very exciting. And uh, it's needed because one of my friends who is a big uh, communications researcher, she seems to think that a huge majority of relationships in our life, whether they're professional or personal, are left behind or when they fizzle out, it's always about communication, right? It's yes. just communication was unclear and it's not entirely clear what happened to us. And right. anyone that's not in our life currently might just be not be there anymore because we miscommunicated with them so many times in the past and we didn't even know we were miscommunicating and uh, didn't, you know, we didn't understand each other. It's not necessarily visible to us. So right. I feel like this is a scenario where we, it's very hard for us as humans to imagine what a future of more perfect communication looks like. Right. Yep. So it's, it's hard for us to imagine how abundant could a future be where communication is improved by say 20% yeah. or 30%. Um, well, it, it's hard yeah. to imagine it in a, in a, in a quantitative sense, but I think yeah. it's, if, for one thing, it's certainly the role of, of forms like science fiction to help us imagine it in a qualitative sense. And everything that you just said is super resonant. It's echoing around inside the mostly empty confines of my skull uh, because it, it, gets, it gets, <laughs> gets right to the word that I think is the most important word of all out of this, which is empathy. Yes. Right? And Roger yeah. Ebert, before he died, described cinema as an empathy machine. And I think what, what you're describing is the next larger version of that. Communication is supposed to be what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about how language magically sets up, you know, it sets up a piece of your brain inside my brain. So sure. we can kind of share some context. Every once in a while, I try to trot out the, the phrase cognitive empathy, which is what Mezzanine, you know, really and Rumpus really are trying to get at. I don't necessarily need you to like me more or, you know, we don't necessarily need to go on a fishing trip together or whatever. But you and I do need to understand the problem space that we work in in a way that's richer and deeper than we can if we're just sending emails back, back and forth. I, I think it's also interesting that you do end up with a fishing trip and the, you know, having being godparents to other other folks, children and so forth as a result of work that's rich and satisfying and deep in all those ways. So I couldn't agree more. Like maybe if we were all uh, as good as you are as writers, for example, we could induce more, you know, shared, shared narrative, I, emotional, cognitive, unfortunately, to each other. Uh, so I'm not but, that great of a writer, but, uh, Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be possible until we move past the written word. So I, I, I think that McLuhan was uh, right about many, many things. And uh, there are so many different biases that are deep in our brains now mm. where we encountered Gutenberg's galaxy. We didn't know the number of trade-offs that we were getting into when we started using the written word. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that it's pretty high. So we're going to, in a sense, have to uh, wean ourselves off or get into a rehab before we enter the next uh, phase of uh, communications, do you, right? Do you think we'll actually have to unwind it? Uh, yes, before? I, oh, I, I, think, I think that there are deep problems. So okay. without, without getting into too much McLuhan, uh, just reading the words you know, from left to right on yeah. a page where they're all uniform, that is not how the world works, basically. Mm. It's, it's how some of our communication works, but uh, if somebody has the 
even a little bit of uh, different background or experiences, there might be three different words on this page that are unconsciously pulling up traumas that they've uh, faced in the past. And I have no idea about, you know, that mm. just passing this document to them is literally causing them physical pain. That is happening on micro levels all the time. We're just unaware of it. Okay. Um, I was about to say, is that a primary or a secondary or tertiary effect? But I think what you're suggesting there sure. is that if it happens on a micro level all the time, even though that might be tertiary, there's a buildup of toxicity that's going to so. get in our way. I think so. And in, in every, um, so our, our team is pretty small at this point. We got, I was a solo non-technical founder in 2017. Uh, we've been building, but we're still only about uh, 16 people counting contractors now. And it's uh, communication is notoriously difficult, but I've noticed the same thing in other enterprises, right? So my wife recently joined from Google and every enterprise around this world has the same problem. And it's it, true. hiring, recruiting, and retention is estimated to be about a $5 trillion problem. So HBR mm. says that it's about that big. And I think that that's just a communication problem uh, of people not knowing what they're getting into, of uh, feeling drained when they, because communication is something that if there's a lot of friction, there's nothing more draining, right? <laughs> than ha- continually trying to express yourself and having it fall flat. That's it one of the worst experiences. Yeah. It's one of the worst experiences yeah, ever. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think so this that, is interesting because I think there's, I think this is a place where, uh, without being at all tech utopianist, which I am now the opposite of, without any of that, not either. I think we could say that this could be one of the biggest contributions that technology has. It, that is to say, there is the opportunity for tech to substantially, if not solve, uh, it catapult us to the that next plateau. I think so. Of communication. Yeah. Uh, you know, companies like Slack are a step in that direction. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that what Slack does isn't complicated, but it's beautiful by dint of its simplicity. And it, it it's it's clearly a channel that was always there, always ready to uh to connect people, and it just hadn't happened the right way until then. IRC so, didn't have emojis until it, Yeah. <laughs> but as as simple as that sounds, I'm actually in awe of how easy it is and how effective you can be with just emojis. And people think that that's uh, simple or anything. I don't think so. I think some of the most advanced civilizations from the past have used symbols to a great effect. And uh, I think symbols are very interesting, but our written language and our visual computing and UI and everything has to change. So it, it does. It, actually, just a few weeks ago, a Slack executive said to me, and, and I was sort of bowled over because there's a generational issue here. I'm sorry <laughs> to say. Uh, he said emojis can become workflow. Mm-hmm. And as a, you know, as a sentence with a small integer number of words in it, I thought that was kind of profound. But I think you're right. I think that there, we're going to need to learn to speak pictures. Yes. In a way. And yeah. what that looks like is not something it's not clear yet, that but... anyone can imagine. Right. Maybe one analog, and this is going to get sci-fi real quick, um, <laughs> and so maybe that's fun, is you know, people are, have been excited for the last three or four years about speech recognition and what what they call speech interfaces. But really, what, and without without minimizing the incredible achievements and efforts that have gone into it, what we have basically is is not much more than semi-accurate transcription. But that's that itself is not a new UI. And so we could say in a kind of critical mode, well, why hasn't, why haven't the underlying technologies of, of, you know, Siri and, uh, and Alexa and the rest of them spawned a new UI. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about why human language isn't the right version hmm. 
for UI, it's not spatial, it's bad at describing a lot of, uh, it, it sort of exists in the wrong dimensions, it exists in the time rather than the space dimension. But those may not be fundamental impediments. I think that it, it might be possible to invent an oral, an a sonic language yep. that humans can learn to, you know, apprehend input in and produce output in. Again, I know this is sort of sci-fi land now, and I don't know whether we're, you know, going to be it's an chirping like dolphins in Day yeah. of the Dolphin with George C. Scott or whatever it is, but that's the direction that it has to go. Like the, the sort of question and answer mode that all of those devices and all of those technologies are currently operating in is, is dead end. Yeah, there, for that for general purpose UI. Definitely. And there were plenty of uh, academics and authors who for many years, they subscribed to this idea that there used to be a perfect language. Right. And so Robert Graves, who wrote The White Goddess and mm -hmm. a couple other books, he was uh, obsessed with this idea, as were many other uh, writers. And the ways we might use our small mouth noises to communicate in the future might be very different. And uh, I mean, just take writing by itself in the olden days that used to be considered a very substandard thing to do. It was a very plebeian, mm -hmm. plebeian thing to do to be a writer, where as if you were somebody who was worth being listened to, or if you were expressing yourself orally and somebody else was taking dictation, that was viewed as kind of like the next level in communication. Right. Um, and some of the best novels, not many people know, but they were expressed orally. Like Dostoevsky would get himself in a jam where he owed everybody money, and then he would find someone to hang out with him long enough for him to dictate a novel to pay off his debts. And he would repeat. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. I thought you were going to invoke Homer. But I had no idea that uh, that uh, only a few centuries passed. Yeah. We were still doing the same. Yeah. Thing. So okay. I, I, a lot of authors write their books that way. It's just it's not cool or popular to talk about. Um, yeah. But so I, I hope with getting more people aware of this stuff, we can get more people running the micro experiments that are necessary to uh, because those micro experiments, I'm sure you see many in the marketplace and that's, those are probably the people you want to hire, you want to partner with, you want to, you know, pull in because the more micro experiments I feel that we have in these topics, that's how we're going to solve them. Uh, I, I think you're and right. They, and they can condense into companies too, if like at, when, once they reach a critical mass. Um, well, I think that's a really important idea though. So, uh, you know, back to the in, incipient dark age of innovation, uh, yeah. it, Nicholas Negroponte has recently taken to saying, um, and, and I think he's right, that the drive, that this Western drive to put everything into a startup right away has kind of drained talent out of places that are actually at the end of the day, much less constrained in the mm -hmm. kinds of experiments, the kind of micro experiments that can be run. And so there's a, you know, there's a recidivist or kind of retrograde stay in school thing that I think we need to reintroduce into the dialogue. Like sure. You don't have to go do a startup right away. Maybe you should try graduate school where, you know, you, you don't have a commercial imperative. This has been a blast, by the way. I'm very, very excited for this interview. We'll have to get you in for round two at some point when you're in town. Uh, I'd be curious to know. Where are you all at as a company now? And maybe could you talk about where you see Oblong in five years, 10 years, or if you want to get wild, let's, let's do a hundred. All right, let's try a hundred. There are very <laughs> few companies that get to live that long. I think in the technology space, we can look at IBM and GE and a small number uh, of others. Maturing a company is an interesting process of balance between, you know, the full measure of vision that, that the company started with and that, that maybe naively expected that it would be able to implement and manifest. And uh, on the one hand, and, and turning that into a, a finite number of products and kind of commercial opportunities. And we're very much in that mode now, but we've still got all of the original ideas. Uh, and, you know, it's that original set of ideas is, is like a big 
you know, lumpy volume, like a Katamari Damasi ball. And mezzanine and rumpus are a particular slice, like two-dimensional slice through that <laughs> that shape, uh, as big a slice as we could manage. On that piece of the house alone, we've got the next 10 or 15 years of work already in our heads, already kind of in the design stages. So there's there's no end to where we can take those those product trajectories. But then I think if we back up one more step, we've got the makings for a, a much larger set of products and technologies that I think properly end up, this will sound really old fashioned, but that, that end up at the operating system level. Like my own view of where collaboration needs to go is there. Right now, uh, your laptop, your, your desktop machine, whatever it is, is again, that solipsistic one person at a time. Only It's a universe with only you in it. Sure. I think that done properly, collaboration will come to be understood not just as an application or an app that you boot up for those five minutes when you need to do it, but as a fundamental property of computation itself. So your computer is two things. It's the thing it always was, which is a repository for your one person at a time applications and documents and data. And then it is also maybe in a literal secondary visual layer it is a, a portal, a wormhole to other people's minds through the form of other people's digital stuff. Sure. And that will add the caveat too that the exciting thing about these technologies is that other users and groups that are using the technology are able to opt in or opt out in terms of how their portal and how their mind is is visible, right? They exactly. can basically opt into the level of collaboration that yeah. they want and everything. So Th there's a whole there's a whole, you know, set of questions around privacy and security that is ultimately has to be shoved aside in order to get the fundamental work done. But it's a, it's an interesting set of questions itself. Sure. Which parts of my digital world do I show to you? More interestingly, what's the UI that depicts in a way that I can always be sure of which parts you're seeing? Right. Like how do we depict your attention? And the attention of the other seven team members, what are they looking at? What are they seeing? Are they getting what I'm showing? Are they accidentally seeing something that I didn't mean to show? Sure. That stuff is really super interesting. I and can't wait just to getting to the beginning. of. I can't wait for it. I can't wait to depict the uh, the redacted sections, too, so I can <laughs> keep everyone good. I'm just kidding. John, this is awesome. Very, very excited for where you're at and the future of the company. So impressive. 150 of the Fortune 500 are, are clients now. Yeah, Fortune 500, Forbes Global 2000. It's a, sure. it kind of is, uh, whether we meant it or not, it's, an, <laughs> it's a company Definitely. with an international uh, customer base. Very, very it's impressive. It's about distance collaboration. Yeah. So for anyone out there that's listening, that's an executive, uh, we highly recommend check out the Mezzanine product. If you're an SMB, check out the Rumpus product. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll have to get you in for round two. It's Some been a blast. Thank Thanks. You. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.